the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm Jim Urio. And if you listen to Dan Proft's morning show, I, I usually appear on it about once every two weeks. To give you a little background about me, I've been a, a, in the futures market and the financial world for about 35 years. What I, I do is I'm a kind of a macro analyst for hedge funds, banks, a trader, and a broker. And when you're someone who, who analyzes macro and you trade interest rates and currencies, a, a lot of policy things are front and center in your trading strategies. So over the 35 years, I like to think I've absorbed some things about what seems to work and what doesn't. Also, I'm a CNBC contributor. I've been on air with them for about 15 years. Uh, I also do work for the CME for their, uh, their website, and I've been in media for, for a lot of years. Um, the, there's a couple things that I'd like to point out in this show today we're going to go over, and we have some really good guests. We have Scott Nations, we have Jeff Kilberg, we have Casey Mulligan, we have Samuel Abrams, and we have John Carney of Breitbart. So the first two guests are going to be specifically kind of financial and economic guests. Now, don't let that, I mean, someone called economics the dismal science, which I think is the most ridiculous description I've ever heard. Economics is fascinating and fabulous. Wars are fought over economics. And right now we're in an unbelievable time that I think we need to dive into quite a bit. When I get Scott on, it's going to be our first guest. There's a couple of things I'm going to talk about here. Something has changed dramatically over the last few years as far as government spending and, uh, you know, zero rate policy that's been had by the, by the, uh, the Fed. So everybody's acting like it's no big deal that we keep racking up these unbelievable trillion-dollar numbers of government debt, and everybody acts like no big deal. The reason that's the case is that over the last five or six years, there's been something called modern monetary theory that seeped into the consciousness of, of all economists, even conservative economists, and that's what bothers me the most. And basically, the gist of it is this, is that the, the United States can issue as much debt as they want because they're the issuer of the currency and they have resources that are far, far greater than, um, than the, the amount of debt that we have now. So somewhere there's a number out there. And there's a woman named Stephanie Kelton who's a Stony Brook professor who wrote a book called The Deficit Myth, which outlines this nonsensical, absurdist theory about economics, which, by the way, this is the same old stuff that's been going on for thousands of years with, with hubris with your currency – if you become overconfident, you do stupid things, and then you have a calamitous currency event, which I'm not, by the way, predicting any sort of calamitous currency event, but I am saying that we're getting a little closer. But anyway, the theory of MMT is that taxes itself are not used to raise revenues for government spending. Government can just deficit spend all they want. I mean, her contention is that we could have $100 trillion, $200 trillion worth of debt, and that's no problem at all. Now, how do I wind this back to markets, which is supposed to be my expertise? Well, Bitcoin, gold, silver, other currencies, Swiss franc, euro, real estate, they're all screaming a message to us 
that I think it'd be silly for us to ignore. They're saying that the world is becoming a little bit less confident with the currency and dollar policies that are being implemented by the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve. And that's why, and I'm long all these things. I, I gave a speech at the um, New Orleans Investment Summit in August where the title of it was How to Hedge Dollar Risk. And by the way, I also think one of the things we're seeing in the U.S. stock market, particularly in the NASDAQ, is also a reaction to a little bit of a concern about the dollar going forward. I want to, to underscore something. When you're talking about a currency problem, nobody likes to mention the word hyperinflation. And no, everyone looks at you like you're being hyperbolic or overdramatic when you do something like that, when you say it. But if hyperinflation ever occurs, it's literally the worst type of collapse you can have. I mean, we've seen a collapse in the real estate market. We've seen a collapse in tech stocks. That's nothing. That's a walk in the park compared to when we, if we have an actual currency um, collapse in a hyperin- hyperinflation sort of situation. And people will tell you, that the dollar is the only game in town from a global reserve currency standpoint, and they're 100% right at this point. Now, the bad part is, is that they're right up until the part that they're wrong, and once we get close to that, it's, it's somewhat of an irreversible thing. So I always think of it as this way, is that there's a waterfall out there, and it's night, and we keep sailing closer and closer, and we know it's some distance away. And we become more and more emboldened to sail closer to it. But if we get to a point where it starts sucking the boat over the end, then there's nothing to do. In Caracas, Venezuela, they no longer have a rat or a, uh, a stray cat population because those became food sources for people who were trying to survive when they were in a hyperinflation environment. Now, it, I think that – I will say this. I think we're directly pointed at a hyperinflation um, end I think it's years and years away, and I think there's a multitude of exits along the way. And my belief still is that we will take some of those exits. Um, in my mind, we, we used to have like a 1% chance of something like this happening, and now I think it's been bumped up to 5 and 6. And that's why you're seeing tons of money flock into um, uh, Bitcoin, gold, real estate. Really, when, when Scott Nations and Jeff Kilberg come on, I, I do want to talk about Bitcoin a little bit too, because I think there's a lot of nuance to that discussion as well, and how it's kind of replaced the currency hedge of, that was normally gold and silver. And gold has actually had a difficult time over the last, um, let's say, month or so. And I think part of that is because people are selling their gold uh, to buy Bitcoin. But silver, and if you guys follow me on Twitter, at jimurio.com, um, not .com, whatever, at jimurio. Uh, you'll know that silver's been one of my bigger trades over the last couple of weeks. And the reason I chose that is because in my basket of dollar hedges, and I mentioned them several times, Bitcoin, gold, silver, other currencies, um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, gold, they, they, don't, they don't pay a dividend. They're not really used in anything. They are strictly, strictly a dollar hedge. Now, the reason I chose silver, and you can also copper, platinum, palladium go into this too, is that they're, they're, they kind of straddle the line where they're definitely a dollar hedge. Uh, if dollar goes down and the dollar starts to lose value, they will go up. But they're also associated with a, a reopening of our economy um, because they're used in, I'm not even necessarily sure what silver is, is used in, but I do know this, that when the market decides that silver is the play, money flocks to it quickly and it tends to move very, very fast. Now, it's funny that we're talking about dollar issues the day after the stimulus package is passed. And I, this is something that I, I can't emphasize enough, and I've read through some of the internals of the stimulus package, and it just goes to show all of us the little respect our lawmakers currently have 
for us, the little people. When they're just, you know, to throw $600 crumbs at people. And again, I'm mostly for not government being involved in a ton of these things. But if the government's going to close businesses around the country due to the pandemic, then it's incumbent upon them to keep some of these businesses afloat. I don't think they did a very good job in this. And I think some of the things that are in it are absolutely embarrassing. And the, the funny thing to me is that they are not embarrassed. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that with some of our guests as well. I think this is going to be a really fun show. We have John Carney on, who we're going to talk with John about the, the elections in Georgia and the potential for that swinging the Senate to be in favor of the Democrats. And I'm sure my opinion on this is going to surprise nobody. I think markets in general like when government is divided. I think markets in general like when they believe that the government isn't going to be able to pass anything and get in the way of things that are going. Again, we don't have a lot of confidence that the things that the government passes generally are helpful. Um, The thing that's really interesting about this is that the Democrats ran on a tremendous amount of tax hikes, and John Carney's going to go into them um, at a more individual level. This is the part that I need him to answer, is that they've told us every... Democrat and even some Republicans have sworn some type of fealty to modern monetary theory, which I talked about before. So it embedded in modern monetary theory is the notion that we don't need tax revenues to pay our bills and we can just use deficit spending for that. And also in modern monetary theory is that you you raise taxes mostly just to redistribute wealth. And believe me, every time I say that word redistribute wealth and the government's involved, it it's, makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And it did that time as well. Um, I, you know, redistributing wealth, not only is it not the government's job, but every time they intend to do it, it, it seems like a, it's just a terrible, terrible disaster. And I personally have given speeches on this topic before, too. I think the government is one of the biggest inducers of rampant wealth inequality that we have today. And by the way, everybody, when we talk about wealth inequality, Everybody talks about it like it's the most terrible thing in the world. Remember this, the opposite of wealth inequality is wealth equality, which means everybody has to have zero. If everyone, again, if everybody had the same stuff and everybody made the same amount of money, the first thing I'd do would be to turn off my alarm on my nightstand because I'm certainly not going to be getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning if I'm going to have the same amount of money as everybody else. And that's what drives a dynamic uh, economy. But we're going to talk about these sort of things with what the Democrats' plan is, how likely it is to get done uh, with John Carney of Breitbart. Also, one of our other guests, which I think this is fascinating too, particularly because I'm a suburbanite myself, we are going to talk about migration from city to suburbs with uh, Professor Samuel Abrams. And I think that's going to be a fascinating discussion as well. And I think it's multi-multifaceted, and it's been exacerbated by the pandemic. But we got a lot of really cool things coming up, so it's going to be a fun show. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show this is jim urio and we have a guest that i'm particularly excited about and for those of you who watch us on cnbc you know that we've done things together before and this is the President and Chief Investment Officer of Nations Indexes, Scott Nations, and an author. And his book, The History of the United States in Five Crashes, I believe is a must-read. I have the intention span of a gnat, 
and I still could sit down and read hours and hours of that book. To, and to make, again, I started off this show by talking about how you know, somebody called it the uh, economics, the dismal science. Economics is never the dismal science. Economics is what, how wars are fought and people live and die and starve and prosper. And Scott Nation is here to talk about it. If you haven't seen Scott before, he is a, uh, a prematurely gray-haired person, which gives him the air of wisdom and sophistication. Thank you for coming on, Scott. Well, thank you, Jim, and, and thank you for that. And and I noticed you said the error of wisdom and not. <laughs> oh yeah, no, really no, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, but anyway, so Scott and I sometimes we come into conflict with how I like I have fun talking about these things, and these things are some some somber and serious topics. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm making light of any of this stuff because I'm certainly not. But Scott, looking at your book, The History of the United States and Five Crashes. Let's bring that to, to right now and what you see that's going on that could potentially be the harbinger of the next great crash. And, and hopefully you're going to say nothing. I'm not trying to, to get anyone all riled up, but let's roll. Well, and, and Jim, part of the problem with writing a book like this, and, and, and let's face it, crashes are, are, are really rare. And that's a wonderful thing because uh, they are horrible when it, when it comes to people's everyday lives. People sometimes pull out of the stock market for years or decades. Uh, after the crash in 1929, and it's just—it's really tough to save for a retirement or fund an education without investing something in the stock market. And so, uh, you're right. We can we can have a fun conversation, but but these are uh, these are definitely important issues. So, uh, yes, crashes are rare, and that's a good thing. And the five crashes I talk about in the book span more than a decade, uh, but they all have things in common. And one of the things that does worry me a little bit right now, and this is a theme that, that I talk about in the book, when interest rates are too low for too long, uh, then what happens is we build up asset bubbles. And, you know, given that, the, for example, the, the Russell 2000 index of small cap stocks has more than doubled from the March low, and, and that, you know, the NASDAQ 100 is up 45% on the year. I don't know how you can look at the current situation and not say, boy, maybe it makes sense for, for interest rates to be really low, but should, but should they essentially be zero for years and years and years if what happens is that it inflates asset bubbles? And I think that that's the one thing to be worried about right now. Okay, what you just said brings up two questions to me. When you said after 1929, it was decades before anyone ventured back into the stock market after being being smacked like that. My father wouldn't touch a stock after that until his death, which was only like six or seven years ago uh, because of that. Now, my question is, is because we are in a short attention span world right now, and I alluded to that when I talked about your book, does this shorten up the, the memory of people walking back in? Do we, have a new, do we have a new class of investors that has forgotten about things that comes along maybe a quarter of a generation instead of a, a full generation? Uh, it, absolutely. And it's called, there are lots of biases that investors have. And, and one of them is called the availability bias. And what happens is people think that the stuff that they can remember is what happens most frequently. And it's one of the reasons that people tend to think that crashes are more common than they are, because, you know, everybody your age and my age remembers 1987, and everybody's heard about 1929, and everybody lived through uh, 2008. And so those are the things that really stick with us, that are available when we start thinking about the stock market. And so people do tend to stay away 
because they think, oh, my God, I don't want to go through that again. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them for not wanting to go through that again. But over time, the stock market goes up, and it's a great way, again, to fund education for your kids or fund your retirement. So you're 100% the case. You're absolutely right. The people fall for this bias because they do have these attention span problems. Okay, so you mentioned bubbles, and you and I have lived, you you just pretended that we were separate ages, we're like four years apart. I'm four years older than Scott, and he always makes it out like I'm an old man. But let's just say we're the same age. So in our lifetimes, we've lived through the tech bubble, and we've lived through the real estate bubble. You said that low rates fuel bubbles. Of that, with that, I agree with you 100%. I look at the landscape right now, and I see moderate-sized bubbles in almost everything. And then I'm able to sleep at night because it can only bust and be ugly and terrible if the, the, the biggest bubble can be in one thing and, then, and people leverage up and then it pops and it drags you know, mom and pops and, and you know, weak margin with us. Do you think I'm misinterpreting this? Do you think that there's a bubble somewhere that's worrisome right now? And if so, what? Well, it, and here's part of the problem. It doesn't have to be a cataclysmic bubble that pops with something like you know, down 22% like we saw in October of 1987 or, or down, you know, 20% over two days that we saw in 1929, you know, it can, it can really drag out. It can be just be a grinding bear market like we saw in 1973 and 1974. And, and, you know, for the 1980s, most of the 1980s, uh, people only started to get back into the market after that horrible first half of the 1970s. So I, I, I would say that the potential for the market to be uh, in a little bit of a bubble uh, is, is certainly exists. And, and what is going to happen, and this is the problem, you know, you, if you keep rates low forever, then you can essentially go on this way forever. But eventually, eventually the Federal Reserve is going to have to try and raise rates a little bit or you run the risk of a whole bunch of inflation. Okay. And so what happens when they try to finally raise rates a little bit? So we talked about the dollar. I talked about the dollar in my intro. And the dollar's hegemony, is that in any way at risk, in your opinion? Or is there just no, nothing else globally that can, ever, um, that can ever even come close to challenging it? Is that why we have the hubris that we do? Well, you and I, and I'm, you know, you and I are, are, are approximately the same age, roughly the same age. Thank you. You and I have both there. Yeah, we have both been around the block enough to know that once you say that something is absolutely uh, top of the heap, will never be pulled down. You, you know that that's the top. Um, you know, I I hearken back to when the biggest thing in technology marketing was talking about the AOL keyword. So. Chevrolet would have a TV advertisement, and they would tell you what the AOL keyword was, so you could look it up. Well, that's 20 years ago, and who, where's AOL now? So, no, I would never, to use your word, have the hubris to say that the dollar can't be toppled. That said, it would take a lot of work. So, uh, you know, can, can, the, can the Chinese yuan topple the dollar? Well, you know, maybe eventually. It would require a bunch of changes on China's part, but, you know, as soon as you say, no, it can never happen, then you're proven wrong. That's, I, I agree with you 100% on that. And when you look at the, the notion of well, the way our government's behaving now, and I, I made the point that I think modern monetary theory is seeping into both sides of the aisle, do you, what level of absurdity do you think the notion is that we can just keep spending forever? Oh, it's, it, it's absolutely crazy. It's absolutely nuts. At some point, at some point, even the government will have a debt which is so large that it has an impact. But... But let's take a look at, you know, you, you say it's keeping 
uh, into Congress on both sides of the aisle. Well, Jim, I mean, our, our, our national debt is $22 trillion with a T. Scott, we have to cut it for a break right here, but I love the way this conversation is going, so let's come back to it in a second. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. So, Scott, the last thing you were talking about was the absurdity of modern monetary theory. I think when you you gave a number for what the national debt was, and I think in the time we had that commercial, it's up by another trillion. Can you please elaborate on what you were saying? Well, I, it probably is up by another trillion. But let's look at it this way, Jim. When, when, uh, when you borrow all the money, when the federal government borrows all the money in the world and interest rates don't go up, when the 10-year yield is less than 1% a year, why wouldn't you think, hey, maybe we were wrong. Maybe supply and demand doesn't uh, apply to uh, government borrowing. Um, we, we know that in the long run it has to. It just has to. Uh, no doubt. You know, we, don't, we don't suspend the laws of nature just because they're economically convenient right now. But I understand why people are saying, hey, you know what? Maybe we can borrow a whole bunch more money. The problem is we're going to end up with a, a national debt of $75 trillion dollars and then we're going to realize, oops, maybe we've made a mistake. Right, and I think that's at the point of the time where it pulls the boat to the to the waterfalls, and it's too late once you realize you've made a mistake. Let's talk about something, uh, Bitcoin. The first time a couple of years ago when Bitcoin made its you know Herculean run up to twenty thousand, I thought that was fueled by fear of missing out, fueled by you know a, a young investor class generation who thought you know they have all the answers, like all young people do, and. They don't realize that you and I have all the answers, but whatever. We'll talk about that later. This run up in Bitcoin, this run up in Bitcoin to me feels different. This run up in Bitcoin to me is worrisome. Uh, Is the market telling us that they don't like the current policies of the government and spending and the zero rate policy? Do you agree with that completely? I I, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think there are a couple of things going on, and I think this is is in many ways psychological. But you're absolutely right, Um, and, and. you know, the dollar index, I, I like to look at the dollar index, ticker symbol DXY, it's above 90 right now. But earlier this week, it was below 90 uh, at one of the lowest levels we've seen in some time. And so if you're looking for a dollar hedge, uh, if you're older than us, Jim, then you think gold. But if, you know, you're a little bit younger than us, what do you do? You think Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so I think that Bitcoin, the rally in, a, in Bitcoin is a couple of things going on. One is it's not particularly liquid. Number two, people are looking for a dollar hedge. And number three, there's a psychological factor to it. You know, it's such cool technology. People want to be part of that technology. So I think it's part of what happened, you know, in 1999 uh, with the tech bubble. You know, people saw these these products that were so cool, they wanted to be part of them. Okay, here's something that, you know, you, you, the, um, you know, Bitcoin's rally has been, you know, obviously unbelievable. 
but it's not it doesn't it's not ready to be exchangeable at this point in time. I think seriously, you call gold, you call gold uh, an expensive doorstop. You've called it that hundreds and hundreds of times to my knowledge. But you also mentioned the dollar index. Now in the dollar index, 70% of that is measured against the euro and the yen. These are other countries and zones which have tremendous debt loads as well. So when we're looking at the dollar index, are we really not getting the picture of the weakness of the dollar because it's being measured against other weak currencies as well? Well, I mean, you make a great point. Uh, first of all, I have not used that phrase about gold and expensive doorstop. Come on, I love when you use that phrase, an expensive doorstop, okay. getting more expensive. <laughs> I, yes, it is. Uh, I, use it, I use it, but I don't use it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, that said, uh, and you're right about the dollar index. It's overwhelmingly the, the euro currency and the Japanese yen, which is unfortunate because you know, a, a trade-weighted basket would probably make a whole lot more sense. But you can't really do that because, you know, you can't trade. You can't really trade the yuan, uh, and we try trade with China a ton. Um, you know, I. I the, but the dollar, the dollar is weak for for a couple of reasons. One is, let's look at it this way. You know, we got some some kind of disappointing inflation news earlier this month. Um, it looks like inflation is running at about two and a half percent a year, which doesn't seem like very much until again you look at the ten-year Treasury yield, and it's less than one percent. So every day that you own the 10-year treasury, you are losing ground. And if that's the case, why in the world would you want to own the dollar if you're going to lose ground every day you own it? I think that's the biggest problem with the dollar. But I also I think you make a neat point about uh, about Bitcoin. Uh, you know, you mentioned inflation. And my contention is that, and, and I'm going to just get a one-word answer from you, too, because we're running out of time. My contention is that the traditional measures of inflation are completely inadequate right now. I think that that um, you know the internet has made comparison shopping so much easier, uh, and people don't really you know their products and, and consumer inflation is nowhere to be found. So I think they're having a difficult time measuring it. Do you agree? Uh, I do. In the '70s, we were worried about the cost of a gallon of milk or a loaf of bread, and I'm certain that there are people now who are still worried about that. So and and that's that's horrible. That's horrible in America today, but that's much less an issue than it was say in the '60s or '70s. Hey, we're going to take a break. This has been a really fun conversation. I appreciate you being here very much, Scott. Uh, thank you, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is Jim Urio sitting in for Dan. And a couple things have struck me is that, you know, the same, you're blessed to live in interesting times. I'm not sure that it was supposed to be this interesting at times because every time I turn around, it seems like something that's just is making me crazy. And number one on the list today is the stimulus bill. And I know there's going to be people out there who say, well, the stimulus bill, you know, was attached to the omnibus spending bill. So a lot of the things in it aren't really part of the stimulus bill. And I want to stress and I, I want to stress this as much as I can. I don't care. I, here's what I care about is that we've been waiting for months and months. And for those of you who know me, too, I'm, I'm in the finance world, but I also own a restaurant. So I'm, I'm versed in the small business world in my little town outside Chicago. And I have a lot of friends in the restaurant business too. And while those restaurants were being forcibly closed down by the state of Illinois, they, they, they waited patiently 
for somebody to throw them a bone that allowed them to stay in business, and it never really came. And then all of a sudden, after months and months, we get what we have now, which just to read some of the things that are in the bill, you know, a, a billion dollars going to the Smithsonian Institution, you know, 25 million to the Kennedy Center. They're, just the list goes on and on. Foreign countries receiving, you know, uh, Egypt getting 1.3 billion, Sudan getting, and again, I, the United States is the richest country in the world. I want the United States to make the world a better place, but you have to pick your spots now. When there's real people in our country who are suffering and and not not living paycheck to paycheck, that ship is sailed. Now they're just trying to feed their family, and that's that's sad to me that they came out with this bill and they threw it at us, and we're supposed to to suck up the crumbs. And what amazes me the most about it is now in the days of um, of social media and everybody can see the important takeaways from this bill right away. And we look to them. I believe there was a time in our life where they'd be embarrassed to be caught with putting something forward that was so egregious and so ridiculous. Not, not only do I don't think they're not embarrassed at all, I think they don't care one bit what we tend to think. And uh, somebody said, and I don't know who, and I don't particularly care, that, that um, a government who's scared of the people they govern, that's, that's what freedom is. If the government isn't scared at all, that's tyranny. And I'm not, you know, tyranny is hyperbolic and a dramatic word, and I'm not sure that's the right word to use right now. But uh, when I look at that stimulus bill, it irritates the heck out of me, and I'm sure it does to, to many of you as well. Um, we're also, we have some guests coming up. We're going to talk about taxes, um, which this should affect everybody. When the Democrats ran on increasing taxes, to me, that looked like, very much of a losing proposition. I don't, if you think if you go back, it's odd to see a, a candidate win talking about running on raising taxes. I know Barack Obama did too, but at the time he came in, it was all about reining in corporate excess because they were effectively able to blame the great recession on corporate excess, banks lending. They seemed to forget the complicit part the government had that they pushed them into it. But we're going to talk about taxes now and what the Democrats' attitude toward taxes because I have this uh, weird out there theory that the, the, the Democrats didn't want to ra- don't want to raise taxes as much as they wanted to talk about raising taxes, because it's very, very convenient for them to 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 do this thing. And again, I, I, I want I'm, I'm less political than Dan is, but some of these things are very macro, uh, you know, very right out there in front of us. It, it is what they made work was painting this class of people who were taking advantage of making their millions on the backs of the poor working man, and those people were going to pay their fair share, which fair share, when I hear that even said, it, again, that's another one of those phrases that makes me crazy. Um, also, again, part of the interesting times here is that the, the talk is changing minute to minute regarding the pandemic, regarding the vaccine. Um, vaccine, 11 million doses of the vaccine have been delivered uh, to different places in the United States up to this point. Only 650,000 of them have been actually shot into someone's arm. And I'm not even saying, I know nothing about the efficacy, about the safety of the vaccine. I am saying this, is that if the private sector was in charge, if me and you were in charge of this rollout, that it would have been more efficient, quicker. It was approved at 10 o'clock on a Friday night. And I know that they couldn't ship until it was approved. But why weren't those trucks rolling out at, at 10:15? I mean, you got to strike while the iron's hot. I mean, in the private sector, you know, my restaurant, my bar, Brant's of Palatine, Palatine, Illinois, for those of you in the area, um, you, we, we, when people want to buy hamburgers, we sell them hamburgers. When people want the vaccine, it should have been rolling out right away. The notion that we were just going to kick back and like, you know, let's take this up again on Monday was just so government to me. And that 
really, that leaves a bad taste in my mouth that hasn't gone away yet. Um, so we got a lot of things to talk about here. I still am going to reiterate the thing that's my, my most important rant over the last six months, and that is the dollar's global hegemony. And before anyone starts to think that's boring, I will reiterate that if a currency collapses, and, and I know we have some, some cavalier currency policies right now, and I'm not suggesting that any time within the next week or so, the dollar is going to fall out of its spot of being the world's reserve currency. But I believe is if we're flirting with that outcome, that's an awful, awful thing. And of all the different types of crashes, we've seen a real estate crash. We've seen uh, the tech bubble crash. If a, if a currency collapses, that's where things get get ugly, more ugly than you can imagine. Just read stories about the Weimar Republic. Read stories about Venezuela. We're, we're talking about, you know, just hunting down rats for food to feed your kids and, and even worse outcomes than that. So I think I'm, I'm very, very worried about that. But what we have to, in my world, the financial world, we have to talk about ways to protect ourselves from that. And again, I, I gave a speech about uh, four months ago about hedging dollar risk. And if we think we're in what I like to call phase one of dollar concern, and concern is a lot different than a big problem that we have. So I think you, you look at things like Bitcoin. And obviously, a lot of people thought the same as me because Bitcoin is going through the roof. I also have Ethereum. I have silver. I have gold. If you want if you believe that we are coming back online as a global economy and you think the dollar's in risk, which I also think, then you're, you want to belong things like crude oil, things like you know the Canadian dollar, which is associated with the price of crude oil. And again, the, these things, this is just, these are just broad strokes I'm painting here. If anyone wants to know actually really how I'm trading it, I'm, I'm usually pretty open. All you have to do is contact me on Twitter. As I said earlier in the show, my biggest position right now for a short to medium term trade is silver because silver to me is about 90 percent of a strict dollar inflationary hedge and 10 maybe let's call it 10 to 15 percent i understand that makes 105 percent so let's just readjust 90 to 85 about 15 percent of an actual rebound because silver is used in production again it doesn't matter if someone's out there saying well it's not used that much in production if the market says it is it is Price matters, and if, if they think, okay, we're going to buy silver because gold is strictly a dollar hedge, then the market will buy silver. Well, we have a ton of interesting things to talk about, so stay with us. Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is Jim Uriel filling in for Dan. And I want to talk about the, the country, the economy, everything coming back online as we move forward through this winter into the spring. And the one thing that I think is, is more important than it's given credit for is sports. Now, everyone, when I think back of that week in March, the week of Rudy Gobert touching all the microphones at the NBA press conference and then everything falling to pieces within the next couple of days, the, the thing that I'm going to remember, I will remember it on my deathbed. I have two daughters. One of them wears her emotions on her sleeve. She's a little bit of a tree-hugging hippie, which I'm, I'm working on, I swear to God. But the other, who is very calculated, very logical, she rarely shows emotion. I, she has, she, I always liken her to having the, the level of emotion of a computer, which, by the way, she would probably take as a compliment. 
I remember being on the other end of the phone call when she was telling me that the NCAA tournament was canceled. And she, she had no intention of breaking down into tears as she told me it. And it was really, it was so, so troubling to me and such an absolute, you know, just, just a depressing dark cloud that happened hearing her crying on the other end of the phone that the NCAA tournament was canceled. Now, to give you some background of that too, we are Illini people. We are University of Illinois. They've been bad at sports for many, many years, but all of a sudden things are changing in basketball. The Illini basketball team has a pretty nice team and they were actually going to make the NCAA tournament. But my point of this is not about my family and how we feel about sports, but I think part of part of coming back online and having sports and everyone looked and criticized college football for um, taking risks. As it turns out, it doesn't seem like the risks have been that big. But I think it plays a really, really important role in our psyche. And I know that viewership of the professional sports was down huge. And I know that there's probably a lot of reasons for that. I think that among those reasons is, um, you know, all the political stands they were taken to. And I've explained a couple times to people is that I not even saying that I agree or disagree with any of the political stands. Many of them I agree with. But when I turn on a football game or basketball game, I do so as a means of escapism. Um, in my restaurant, if I had a waitress who was walking around handing out pamphlets for political beliefs or his political beliefs, even if it was a, a belief that I 100% agreed with, even if it was a belief that they should listen to the Dan Prof show to get as much of their political and financial news as they could, I would stop them. I would say, no, you, you, you're fired. You can't be pushed. When people come here, they come to check out of their normal, hectic lives. And we can't be throwing that on. So I think that's one reason that the professional sports had a difficult time. But college sports, college football and professional football, they have not seemed to suffer. And mostly that's because we are a nation that loves its football. But I think this serves a purpose. And I know that it's making me feel better and making me be able to have reasons to talk to my friends who I haven't talked to in many months. So I'm certainly hoping that continues. And I'm hoping that the Bears can get more consistent play out of the quarter. Wait, this isn't going to morph into a sports show. I think it should at some point morph into a sports show. But if they can get more consistent play at the quarterback position, I think we could have a lot more fun. And for you college basketball fans, keep an eye on that Illini. The, the COVID has helped them because it kept two of their stars from going to the NBA. And now it's a pretty good team. Uh, we will be back in a moment. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Urio sitting in for Dan. And this is a guest who I've been looking forward to. Um, because I think it's a tremendously interesting topic. His uh, name is Samuel Adams, professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College and is a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so I, I read your article, Listen to the Suburbanites, and I, I loved it. One, because I, I grew up as a suburban in the suburbs I, in the 60s and the 70s outside of Chicago. I moved into the city for some time, and then I moved back out to the suburbs to raise my family. And at the time, it seemed like that was a, a more kind of a common um, pattern for people who had been to college in the time. But you're, you're talking about a migration that's been exacerbated by the pandemic. And it's not just people like me when it was time to raise children and send them to suburban schools. So what do you think is fueling 
the migration of uh, from the cities, and particularly before the pandemic hit, and then from the pandemic. Sure. So the, the pandemic obviously has ex- accelerated and exacerbated the, the flight from many, many of our cities. But um, even before that, we began to see uh, somewhat of an exodus from our cities. And uh, the reason for that is they're too expensive. Uh, Americans really do not like paying uh, through the nose to live in these places and uh, to get uh, to get so little for them in, in many cases. I, I live in New York most of the time, not at the moment. But uh, when you look at what I pay just in, in regular monthly charges to live in New York versus what you can get in uh, a suburb or a suburban area, uh, the, the differences are staggering. And uh, people see that. People know that. Uh, the other thing, uh, and, and it's, it's actually somewhat political, is that if you take a look at a lot of the cities which are dominated uh, by often progressive machines, uh, Chicago is certainly one of them, uh, New York is one of them, uh, you know, a lot of people don't like that, you know, don't really love that type of politic. They don't want to be around it. They don't want to be taxed so heavily, and they don't like all the rules and regulations uh, that, that are set up constantly. And in many, many suburban areas, you just don't have those problems. Okay, so there's a couple things that jumped into my head when I read this, because when I sure. graduated and went to work in the city, I moved into the, you know, what I considered the cool neighborhood back in the 80s. And you did that at the time. It was driven, let's, let's call it from socializing. Really, I mean, you know, where the girls are. And that's sure. why the successful 20, 21, 22-year-olds moved down there. Because, you know, uh, congestion made it much more likely for me to get a date if there was mm-hmm. 20 potential options in a bar instead of one. Um, sure. How is that changing? Has social media changed <laughs> that? What? Uh, it, everything is changing. It, it, it's a great question. One of the things in uh, <laughs> in social science we say is there's no mating without meeting. You have to have propinquity, uh, nerdy word for you have to bump into people. Uh, the fact of the matter is is that people can do that in the suburbs today. Uh, there are many ki- types of, and kinds of suburbs. You know, the, the fact is they're not just these uh, big McMansions with sprawling lawns and everyone's cocooning in their own bubbles. There are plenty of walkable suburbs. There are plenty of places to meet up, plenty of places to drink, have a meal, pre-COVID, of course, in a, in a traditional way, uh, and uh, the city doesn't have a monopoly on that. Uh, also, incidentally, with social media and dating, uh, meeting people in bars seems to be a thing of the past. It still happens, certainly, but uh, when I talk to, to my college students that I teach, I, t- I survey youngsters, uh, so much as this is done and through intermediated apps and, and, and connections that way that, you know, the idea that you're going to pick someone up at a bar or meet at a bar, it's just not as common now anyway. So those sort of third places may not be actually as important. So you can meet someone on an app, go to a nice restaurant that's more affordable in the suburbs, and enjoy it. One of the things that came out of my research is that, um, contrary to your narrative, which was a very traditional narrative, uh, there are many, many younger folks who, after they graduate college or, or they go to the trade school or whatever, want to start their lives, they're not pining for a city. They are pining to be near a city, potentially. They like the suburbs. They like the homes. They like being able to entertain. They like having a pool if you're in a warmer climate. And they don't rush into the city anymore. They know it's expensive. They know it's difficult. Uh, They can certainly visit, but they're quite happy. And greater numbers of people under the age of 30 actually prefer moving to the suburbs uh, than uh, to the cities. And this is pre-COVID. Wow. It's, to me, being on the cutting edge of something, moving out of the city and being hip and cool at the beginning of a trend is quite unusual. I, my, my next question to you, and first of all, I'd like to throw in when I was talking about meeting girls, uh, Margaret, it, I, I was talking about just from a socio uh, you know, study. I'm not looking at meeting girls myself personally. But when I grew up in Palatine, 
outside of Chicago in the 60s and 70s. There was, there was just roadhouses. There was not the mm-hmm. restaurants. So my question, I remember distinctly when the first restaurant came to Palatine that was like a swanky city place. It was called Mia Cucina. It was an Italian place. And it was probably mm-hmm. the year was about 1991 or 92. And what, my long-winded way of getting to this is that have the suburbs been preparing for this? Has economics have changed since the 80s and 90s? And no longer the dining experiences that are exclusive to the city were exclusive to the city, now are available in the suburbs, and the cultural experience, plays, concerts, etc. The suburbs have been getting ready for this for years, right? Absolutely. No, I, I love the way you phrase that. You know, this is not a case of uh, the East Coast Levittowns. You have, you know, post-war uh, sprawl. Our GIs are coming back. We're laying tract house after tract house or row house after row house, which is more of a Philadelphia, Baltimore thing. Uh, and, you know, it's not just bland house after house after house. There's still certainly neighborhoods that look a little bit like that around Chicago. Certainly, if you go north of the city, I've, I've seen them. They're, they're fascinating to see. But the suburbs have begun what I like to call the infill process. They're not like this anymore. They're, they are town centers. They're what they call super centers, which have shopping and restaurants and, and various forms of nightlife, whether it's theaters or activity things like the, the escape rooms or laser tag. The, the suburbs have been doing this for years. Uh, one of the problems with a lot of urbanists, and especially New Yorkers, is they sing the song, the, the song of, of praise of New York. And New York, I get it. I know why people praise it. But the same people who sing its praises have never left it. They don't realize how rich and diverse and wonderful the suburban lifestyle can be for so many people. Now, with COVID, now that we see just how uh, we still can be fairly effective working remotely or working differently, and you realize that, my goodness, you can have a lot more space, a lot more privacy, but also can be social. You can, it, you can have both in the suburbs. You know, we want to be careful, uh, assuming that the, the cities are going to boom the same way as soon as we have the vaccine widely available. Okay, so here, it's going to, this question is going to take an actual second. My daughter had a, had a friend who was uh, from Europe and had a a heavy accent, but they would occasionally ask her to do her Chicago accent. And there mm-hmm. was a bit of a comedy bit, and get, I'm going to tie this in in case you're getting bored, Sam. Sure. I'm going to tie it all together. And she do, it was a bit of a comedy bit when she did her accent, and she'd go, you know, hi, I'm from Chicago. Uh, not from the suburbs, from the actual city. Not that there's anything wrong with being from the suburbs. So that was her take on Chicago, meaning, you know, implicitly that there was this coolness cachet of having a city address compared to a suburban address. That's still going to exist for a while, isn't it? The friends I know who live in the city remind me of that all the time. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and it's a mistake to, to assume that it wouldn't be. Uh, cities have historically been engines of culture. They're still going to be. Uh, you know, you're, you're most likely going to see, you know, certain institutions continue to thrive and continue to be based downtown. Uh, but, you know, think about uh, there are other areas. Uh, you know, consider the fact that, uh, you know, Wrigleyville is not right downtown. Uh, or, or consider things like Arlington, uh, the Arlington ball field, where the uh, Texas, you know, the Texas baseball team right. plays. There, there's a lot of that sprawl going on. You, you think about Detroit, where the Pistons play. They don't play in a downtown area at all. They play in a suburban area. So, you know, it, it's a mistake to assume that suburbs don't want, an, uh, want sort of a, an identity of their own. I, I you know, spent a lot of time growing up in the Philadelphia suburbs, but I'm also proudly from Philadelphia. I grew up in part of Philadelphia. Then I left. I was in the suburbs for part of it, but I'm proudly Philadelphia. So it's, it's a huge mistake to, to, to assume that these cities and their influence and their sphere won't extend uh, into the suburbs. They certainly do. And, uh, you know, as, as the suburbs become more and more diverse, as the suburbs want to connect more and more into the cores of the city, you're going to see more and more uh, public transit uh, and, and regional networks develop, and it's, it's going to merge together. In Philly, you know, the big, suburb, the big transportation system is SEPTA, Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority.
Authority. It's not the Philadelphia Transportation Authority. It's regional. And I think you're going to see a lot of that. Here's another question. And this, again, I don't know if you have the data to back this up, so it's probably just an opinion question. Our life today, I know mine is, with social media, which is we're being bombarded all the time with information. Is there something in our brains that's psychologically happening on a broad scale that you're craving a little bit of the, uh, you know, more of a communing with nature, more of a quiet existence that happens in the suburbs. We've talked about all the cultural and social opportunities, but it still has some of that, that element too, as far as the calm and harmony part of it, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, environmental psychologists have known this for years. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time uh, living in Houston for a while and uh, know some of the folks who are thinking about long-term space flight. This sounds totally out there, but there, there's a point. And the By point the way, is, I love totally out there, so keep going, baby. <laughs> so the, 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 the weird thing is I, I, I had a couple of friends who, who were learning how to do this and how, how do you stay sealed up in a particular space for such a long uh, period of time without going crazy, you know, when you plan for uh, these space missions. Uh, and the answer is plants. The answer is nature. You need these things. You want these things. I mean, you know, I, I can't tell you an issue of time out in New York when uh, people used to live in Manhattan and, you know, tr- move around freely, which, you know, doesn't talk about get out of the city, go take a hike, go up to the Hudson Valley, go up to New Jersey, go out to Long Island. Um, this is something that, is, that, that, that poets, philosophers, uh, biologists, and psychologists, and psychiatrists all realize is critical. We absolutely need some nature. We need to hear those birds every now and then. We need to see some green. Uh, it's very, very well established as a sort of antecedent, having close access to these things. We've done some survey work at AI about what makes a neighborhood desirable. we got to take a quick break, Sam, because I didn't, wasn't watching the clock because I love this conversation so much. So we're going to be back in a quick second. Thanks. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show i'm jim uriel filling in for dan and i'm talking to sam adams who's a professor uh, sam abrams i'm sorry professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. And I I know I've said it three different times, but I love this conversation about the migration from city to uh, the suburbs that's happening, and it's been exacerbated by the pandemic. There's something that we just hit upon in the last segment that I want to elaborate a little bit more, because I believe as I've grown older, the only thing that I really know, Sam, is that I want to live an outward life that's connected to other people. When I think about my retirement, I don't think of biking alone the national parks or climbing in solitude through the Rocky Mountains. I like to be connected. And one of the things I thought about cities historically was that other people like to be connected too. Do we think that now that there's so many other different opportunities to be connected through social media, I can write my thoughts on Twitter and get feedback from 30 people and maybe some people will be put in a better mood because of something I read is the fact that we have we have the internet and we have connectivity there fueling this migration angry but most importantly the studies are very clear on this and we've been able to study this for over a decade now and that is that social media actually makes you feel lonelier more isolated and more anxious uh, we need human contact. We've, we've established this again in, in biology for years. 
And uh, the good news is, is that moving to a suburb or, or it, it is not a death sentence socially at all. Uh, you know, the, the survey work that I've done shows that people are more social in the suburbs. They actually, in, in, instead of necessarily going to bars, they might go to the backyard. They might have a cookout. They might go, you know, if you have a pool, you might go to a pool. Uh, they're not these socially isolated places. You know, you talk about when you were moving around and, and uh, you know, going from the suburbs to the city and back out again. And there, there's a famous quote that, uh, you know, nothing is, is more isolating than a suburban street on a hot summer afternoon. Uh, that was written in uh, the late 70s, early, late 70s, early 80s. The thing is, that's just not true today. It's just not true at all. And we do need human interaction. We crave it. But cities are only one place to do that. The suburbs certainly uh, fulfill that need now as well. Okay, there's, there's two other things that I want to hit on this discussion. I'd feel bad if we didn't get to it. There's a, there's a racial element to this as well. Historically, that uh, different races, minorities, stayed in city neighborhoods and um, you know, white flight out of cities. That's changing. And I know this is, you know, this is a heavier part of it. That you see in the data is changing too, correct? Rapidly, 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 rapidly. And uh, one of my favorite uh, things about uh, a show on CNN, uh, which was the Anthony Bourdain show, was that he would actually go to suburbs all over the country. And I've spent a lot of time, again, in, in places like Houston, where, you know, you drive through and you think they look like those 1960s suburbs, some of the houses and, you know, sort of the layout. But very quickly you realize, oh, my goodness, the diversity here is epic. And another place to see that is go to Silicon Valley, go to California, look at the suburbs there. Uh, they, the socioeconomic status is remarkable remarkably mixed. The spatial ordering is remarkably mixed. There are apartments, there are lofts, there are flats, there are townhomes, there are, uh, you know, community association style homes, there are big homes, there are small homes. And there's incredible varieties of uh, places to shop, uh, racial and ethnic uh, minorities, and I don't like that word, but the, the diversity there in terms of eating and drinking and traditional institutions, it, it's remarkable. And it is a complete myth to think that, uh, you know, the narrative of, you know, racially mixed cities and just a homogeneous white suburbia are, are what it looks like in America today. It does not. It's so funny. You know, I, one of my daughters um, leans toward very, very liberal, and occasionally she gets notions in her head that, uh, you know, that the suburbs is lily white. And I took her for a walk around our block and just point out the house, because we live in an area that's ethnically very diverse with a, a, a huge Asian and Indian influence, um, Hispanic influence. We have a, a group home for developmentally handicapped people in our block. I'm like, are, are you crazy? I mean, of course there's diversity here. It just depends. If you want to define diversity in your certain way, then you can. But there's plenty of diversity here. But there's, there's another thing I want to, to hit on, too, before we leave this topic, and that's the environmental impact. And I know, based on the works of yours that I've read, you don't have a ton of data on this, too. Uh, but you mentioned uh, transportation in the suburbs. It doesn't, it doesn't exist point to point. Transportation in the suburbs is just the suburb to the city. Do you envision a time where there's going to be transportation that's mapped out and spiderwebbed out throughout the suburbs so I can go from Palatine to, Mount, or Palatine to you know, another suburb to visit something in public transportation effectively? Yeah, I mean, it, we, we do see it happening, and, you know, you, you've seen it in, in places like Boston. It's always heavily resisted. People do not like doing it. People feel that it's going to bring uh, what they like to traditionally call undesirables, and that's not racial or ethnic, but just it might be class, uh, it might be crime, and so on. People resist it, they fight it, they hate it, and then in 10 years, they forget about it, and then they realize, oh, my goodness, we have an amazing neighborhood that's built up around it, uh, amazing diversity that's built up around it, and property values go through the roof. And a great example of that is the red line in Boston, which 
extended north uh, past Harvard Square. And again, major fights. And now some of the more desirable and valuable real estate uh, lies up there. It's going to take some time. It's always a fight to do it. Uh, but people, people actually like public transit. And uh, again, you know, getting it through, getting communities to agree to do it uh, is a challenge. Uh, but uh, especially as we see more and more young people wanting to walk, wanting to take public transit and being comfortable in the suburbs, and as we see corporations begin to sprawl more and more, you know, you see corporations uh, leaving California and New York, moving to places like Dallas and uh, Austin, you're going to see a lot more public transit infrastructure come in. Okay, Absolutely. We, we haven't spoke about the pandemic, really, and about how that's exacerbated all this, because I think we've established pretty well that the situation was ripe for this um, for this movement to begin happening anyway. In New York, yes. when we saw the original part of the pandemic, we, it, many of those places had almost 50,000 people living per square mile. A city like Chicago, 13,000 people per square mile. You get out to the suburbs, 2,000 to 3,000 people per square mile. Is, is it in people's head right now because of the pandemic? And every flu season is nasty. And I'm a bit of a germaphobe too, so this social distancing, I'm an elite-level social distancer, despite what my feelings are on the pandemic itself. Is the How big of an element is the pandemic or sickness in general from being in crowded spaces playing into this? I think it's huge. And, you know, the, the big challenge for city planners, for architects, for engineers, is to figure out how to convince people to move home uh, if they came from a city. And the answer is they may not move home. Uh, they may stay away. I mean, people, you know, what, what this has revealed is our earlier part of the conversation. People like this space. They like the greenery. They don't really love living on top of each other. We did that. We do it because there are all these other uh, amenities we think are so great. But the fact of the matter is these amenities now exist in the suburbs. They've existed for a while. They're getting more and more pronounced. If you go to the Hudson Valley, for instance, again, the food offerings up there are phenomenal. They have incredible chefs. They have incredible people doing wonderfully innovative things. And that's not limited to New York. It's all over the country. Um, go through Silicon Valley, which is a quintessential suburb, but they have amazingly uh, interesting uh, people out there that way. So, uh, no, I, I think people like it. I think people, uh, you know, you're going to see some people return because they, they you know, we're going to have a short-term boom, uh, most likely, again, much like the Roaring Twenties, where people just want to do crazy things and be around a lot of people once it's safe to do that. But, again, the pandemic has, has revealed that Americans like their space. They like their greenery. They like their privacy. They also like being social. You can, again, have both in the suburbs. And uh, people realize it's not, you know, this just, uh, you know, you know, monolithic hell. It's actually quite pleasant. And uh, more and more people are realizing that. So many, I, many friends of mine have done that. I have a last question. It's got to be a really sure. short answer. I'm going to get yelled at by the producers again. It, I've asked all the other guests this question, too. In six months, do you believe that the pandemic, and this is just an opinion, I understand that, the pandemic is going to be behind us and we are going to go back to 90 to 95 percent of what we consider normal life? Uh, no. Uh, I think it's going to take a little longer than that, but I, I certainly think within a year. So we'll be back to close to normal. The, I was interested to hear your opinion on that because you're studying a trend. That, you know, real estate and migration trends aren't something that jog back and forth like stock market trends. And I think that's interesting, and I thought you would probably say that. And I, I really appreciate you being on. This has been a great conversation, Sam. I hope to talk to you again sometime. I would love it. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Uriel filling in for Dan. 
Uh, we have a guest, John Carney. You guys are familiar with him from uh, very active in Twitter. He's a Breitbart, uh, the Breitbart News and Financial Economics editor. Uh, John and I go back a bit, too. We worked together at CNBC in the past. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him and his takes, and I, I, I love usually what he talks about and almost, almost agree with him most of the time. We're going to talk about taxes here. We're going to talk about the Georgia runoff elections and what's that, what that means for people. And I, you know, if you guys are like me, I love taxes. I love paying taxes. I love paying my fair share. That's sarcasm. I, uh, I think it's my gift. What do you think, Carney? I have to say, uh, I'm right on board with you. Look, um, we all pay a lot in taxes. And even after the tax cuts, I think a lot of people, especially in times right now, where you know, we see people losing jobs. We want to get the economy started. It seems insane, but the Biden-Harris administration has promised that they are going to make raising taxes a big priority for them. Has that ever happened before where a, a, a president won? I know Obama, uh, President Obama did. You know, he talked about reining in corporate excess and talked about only raising taxes for a small amount of people. Has there ever been a presidential candidate who's just hammered home, oh, I'm coming at you with taxes, and then use that as a winning strategy? It just seems so weird to me. I think one of the things they did quite smartly is promise to only raise taxes on corporations. And a lot of people don't understand that that means raising taxes on people because corporations ultimately, even though they, they can be taxed at the corporate level, are really just pass-throughs to workers and shareholders. Uh, so that's they, talking about raising taxes on corporations helped convince people that their taxes weren't going to be raised. And also focusing on raising taxes on higher earners, people who have 400000 or more, I think that worked, and I don't remember a time that it really ever happened before that somebody campaigned so hard on raising taxes. Okay, so you, you're going to think I'm maybe crazy and have gone a little bit off the path right now, but here's my belief, and I want you to respond on it. You know, every Democrat and most Republican economists, uh, politicians, have sworn some level of fealty to modern monetary theory. And within modern monetary theory, it's stated quite clearly that raising taxes is not necessary at all for raising revenues to operate a government. Government can just do that by printing debt, uh, increasing deficit spending, increasing the national debt. So, and, and it, it's laid out in the book, um, a deficit myth, the deficit myth by Stephanie Kelton, which I'm sure you've read, that that um, raising taxes are just essentially to keep the rich from getting richer. So, here's my question then: Is if the, he wanted a to run on this. The, the, the Democratic administration wanted to run on painting a villain, seeing if they could get the, uh, the, the people to grab their torches and pitchforks and be able to vote against them. Um, do they really have a huge interest in raising taxes? Um, or did they just want to win an election by saying they will, knowing full well that they don't really need that tax revenue? I'm not sure that I, so first of all, I agree with you. I agree with Professor Kelton that there's no need to raise taxes just because you're, you're, there, there's no need for the revenue. You can raise taxes for two real reasons. One is to, as you said, prevent the rich from getting too rich. Or if your economy is overheating, you can tax away some of the spending power of the private sector. Those are the, really the only two reasons you need to raise taxes. I don't know that uh, Joe Biden understands that very well. I don't get the feeling that he has a deep grasp of the economy. Surely some of the people who work for him do understand that it's not necessary. 
But on the other hand, I think that I think that there are enough people around Biden who really do. I don't think that the tax hikes that they're putting in are going to really help equality very much at all. So I think it was mostly a rhetorical stance. Biden's going to stand up to the rich guys. So what what's going to happen if they get the two seats in Georgia and they have you know, of the power in the Senate to pass through anything. What are we to expect? What's the average guy supposed to expect? So one of the things that they will raise taxes if they get those two seats in Georgia. It is absolutely necessary to hold control of the Senate by Republicans if we're going to avoid having this tax hike. One of the very first things they'll do is increase taxes on businesses. The corporate tax, which was cut, will go back up. And that actually is going to hurt people who don't pay the corporate tax in two different ways. One, it will hurt, it will raise everybody's utility bills, your water, your electricity, your natural gas. Why is that? Because these are utilities and utilities get to pass on the cost of taxes onto the consumers because they have a guaranteed return rate okay hold that this thought. year hold that thought john we got to take a quick break but i want to come back to it there's a couple things i want to hit up. thank you very much the more you listen the more you'll know this is this is the dan proft show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is Jim Urio filling in for Dan. And we have John Carney, Breitbart News, Finance and Economics Editor. And what we were just talking about is how the taxes, and, and if the Georgia election goes to the Democrats and the Democrats are going to follow through with their promise to raise taxes, particularly the corporate ones, we were talking about how people don't understand. Like, they made it out that, that it was only, these are taxes. We're only raising taxes on the wealthy. And that's true. But they're also raising taxes on corporations. With that, tax fills through to everybody. I have a restaurant in Palatine, Brant's Palatine. And I know that if we, start, um, if we start making less money through whatever it is, paying taxes, and we, believe me, we pay a, a ton of taxes right now. And every time I, I think of a way to describe the taxes we pay, a swear word comes into mind, and then I remember I'm on the radio. So let's just say I pay a lot of taxes. But, John, can you fill us more in on the way this is going to affect the average person? And how potentially it could exacerbate wealth inequality because it you know, knocks people off the payrolls. That's right. It will knock people off the payrolls. It will have a depressing effect on wages. And increasing – so the other thing it will do is when you increase the taxes on people who earn $400,000 or more, that will actually incre- hurt people who run small businesses who are not you know, poor by any means – but aren't fabulously wealthy. None of these tax hikes are going to make Jeff Bezos any noticeably poorer. So the ultra wealthy uh, will you know, hardly feel this at all. It is more the upper middle class, lower upper class biz- small business owner who will pay a lot more in taxes. One of the things they're gonna do is right now, if you have a small business that's a pass-through vehicle, you get a 20% deduction for, uh, on your taxes. That's going to go away for businesses that have over $400,000 in earnings. Uh, and that will hurt a lot of small businesses. People, I, a friend of mine who runs a landscaping business uh, up in Connecticut, 
he earned, you know, he probably took in $800,000 last year. He has workers who he pays, but he's going to get hit by that, even though he's, you know, he's a guy who digs, who builds walls and digs ditches for a living. He's going to get hit by this tax that supposedly is only going to hurt the rich. Okay, so I, I love this conversation, by the way, and I love how exposing where they, they're misguided and they think they're going after one segment of the population and end up hitting another, which, by the way, happens all the time. But let's talk about capital gains tax. And I don't know if anything is wrapped up in the, in the talk that they've given me. But back in 2008, when Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were debating prior to the election, uh, Barack Obama stipulated to the fact that every time capital gains has been lowered, receipts of capital gains taxes actually goes up. And every time they're raised, they go down. Now, I understand, you know, I'm a little, I've done some math here. And if you took it down to zero, I understand that that would not hold. And if you took it up to 100%, the same would not hold as well. But why are they so, why are we not encouraging the risk takers, encouraging the people who want to engage in CapEx and buy businesses and build, like what could their end game be by raising the capital gains tax, knowing full well that it doesn't do what they say it does? That's a good question. Raising the capital gains tax, I think, especially right now, the economy is going to need people to be willing to invest heavily as we reopen. I would think that when you raise the capital gains tax, basically what you do is say that the more marginal investments that people might be willing to make aren't going to be made because the hurdle rate goes higher when your tax rate on the gains goes higher. So you're taxing, people think of capital gains, I think primarily in terms of the stock market, but it's a much bigger deal when it comes to startups and small companies. This, you know, the big established companies listed on the, in the stock market are, will be fine. But if you are trying to attract, inve- attract investment to your startup, a higher capital gains rate actually makes that much more difficult. So you end up slowing innovation in the economy and that seems, again, especially insane when we're going to be hopefully coming out of this pandemic. This is, this is the things that keep me up at night because I, I can't imagine that there's a group of people who are so nefarious and evil that they know all the same things that, that we know to be true, and yet they follow through on it anyway. Is there a chance that they just don't understand? And you talked about before that perhaps Joe Biden and some of the politicians don't have a, a fundamental grasp of economics. But it always seems like to me, oftentimes, the help that they bring in turns out to be yes men um, more than it turns out. And I'm not I'm, I'm talking about people in the past. I'm not talking about any of the, the current group of advisors, one of which is a close friend of ours who I think does a great job. But is it possible that just the system is set up so that nobody comes in and gives their honest opinion and says, uh, you know, President, uh, President Joe, uh, this will be a bad thing and knock people down, or do they just not care? I think that part of what goes on is when you don't have a plan to actually help people, which I think is a big problem with the Democratic agenda right now, they don't really have a program to make America great again. Um, they have instead a way of saying, look, we might not be able to help you, but at least we're going to kick the guys you don't like a little bit uh, so you won't feel as bad about your, your current condition. I think that's actually the motivation here because otherwise I can't figure out why. And I've talked to people like the modern monetary theory people and said, can't you please just, you know, you have the ear of a lot of Democrats and a lot of politicians on the left. Can't you just explain to them that we really don't need to raise taxes right now? And 
apparently that kind of talk just falls on deaf ears when they try to explain that. Not only do we not need to raise taxes, it just seems what they've done to the economy, it, I mean, is, is unbelievable. I, I mean, I'm in the restaurant business, as I've said about five times on the show, Brant's Palatine, Palatine, Illinois, and, and we're doing fine, by the way, but we have a ton of friends in the restaurant business who are thinking about just closing their doors. And it, it just always seems to me that, like, the government has such poor timing to raise taxes on people now. To people, if they weather this storm and get through this, and then you're going to raise taxes on them again, it just seems so awful and nefarious, no? Yes, and this is why the uh, election in Georgia is going to be so important. It really, it does, what happens is if both of those seats go to the Democrats, there will be a tie, which means that on every partisan divide issue, Kamala Harris will break the tie. One of the first things they're going to do is come in and raise taxes. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I alluded to that before. I think there's a chance they do walk back on it a little bit, and I think it was just kind of, you know, war, war rhetoric when they were in the heat of battle in the election. I'm hoping so. Um, it's always so good to talk to you, John. I very much appreciate you being here and talk to you. Can you give your Twitter handle out real quick for the people? Sure. It's just my name, at Carney, at C-A-R-N-E-Y. Follow me, and thanks for having me. See ya. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is Jim Urio sitting in for Dan. And this this is the first time I've done this show, and I've really, I really—I love being able to sit and talk about things that are interesting with some very smart people. Frankly, I thought the producers were making a, a grave mistake in giving me a microphone relatively unsupervised for two hours. I've been a trading floor, uh, worked on a trading floor for 35 years, and, and down there it's a little bit rough, and it's probably one of the only times in my adult life that I've gone two hours without using any colorful language, but so far so good. But on the show, we've talked about some some fascinating things. We've talked about taxes. We've talked about stimulus. We talked about major psychological shifts in the way people think and where they're moving and what, how they feel about sports. I, I am going to bring it back to one of the things that I think is the most important theme that we talked about here, and I, I don't want it to leave people's mind because I think some of these economic forces that are pushing them around sometimes are a little more complicated and they don't think about them. But the fact that the government is just spending as much money as they feel like spending without a care in the world, and the uh, the national debt has risen $7 trillion in three years' time, um, it is dumbfounding. It just blows me away. The fact that the Federal Reserve is in buying corporate bonds. Yes, remember, everybody knows that that was announced a couple of years ago that the Fed was going to buy corporate bonds. But everyone, just say that to yourself and let that roll around a little bit. The government owning corporate bonds. They're just Now we're just a, a, a sneeze away from the government buying stocks as well. And keep in mind that the Swiss government does, the Japanese, the Bank of Japan does. There, many of these central banks around the world are becoming more and more activists and in getting involved with our life more. Now, the thing that, that I think that everybody should have on the front of their mind is how 
to potentially hedge ourselves and keep ourselves, you know, the risks mitigated of a, a potential currency issue. And when I say issue, it's, it's better than saying a currency collapse or cataclysmic currency problem, because those are hyperbolic and dramatic, obviously. But it, it could be that our government is being a little cavalier with our currency. And that's why we talked about things like Bitcoin and gold and silver and realistically, even the U.S. stock market. Um, I think that as things play out over the next few months, you know, our, our life just becomes more and more interesting when we see how these um, these uh, elections going to play out in, in Georgia. I think that the, the, the stock market could have a difficult time adjusting to the notion that a government that's not divided and can push through an agenda, particularly an agenda that has corporate America in the crosshairs and says that we want to tax you more and we want to rein in corporate excess. Surprise, spoiler alert, the U.S. stock market is made up of different corporations and they're not going to like that too much. Now, there's a lot of people out there who are pretty smart saying that the government's going to spend so much money that it's going to dwarf the problem of overtaxation. I'm, I'm sure that that's probably the case because it seems like both sides of the aisle just keep wanting to spend. But um, it's interesting if the stock market can, is going to make that adjustment. But anyway, taxes, life and death, psychological changes. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, thank you all for joining us today. I, I hope to do it again. This has been Jim Uriel, and this is The Dan Prof Show. This is The Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Urio sitting in, and we have Jeff Kilburn who's the CEO of KKM Financial, also a CNBC contributor. Uh, Jeff and I have done a lot of work together uh, on CNBC. He's a futures trader, a market analyst. And for you guys not from the Midwest, I'm not sure this joke it broadens out to the whole countrywide. But around here, we, everyone, you know how you can tell someone went to Notre Dame? Because they tell you within the first 10 seconds. So I'm just going to get that out there real quickly. <laughs> Jeff went to Notre Dame and did play football there for Lou Holtz. And we are going to talk about uh, sports a little bit in this talk too, Jeff. But first, we're going to hit finances. And I, I want you, let's start really broad. And let's look out to 2021. And what do you, well, here, let me put it this way. Over the last eight months, what have the themes been pushing, equity markets particularly, or any other market you want to talk about it? What are the themes that are pushing it today? And then out in 2021, what's going to be pushing financial markets, particularly equities? Well, Jimmy, always great to be out with you, my friend. Yes, we do go back uh, over a decade talking markets, arguing, polite debates, but also uh, you know, giving each other uh, some jazz and having a hard time. That's what we do. We bust chops. But being here in Chicago, you know, it is an extraordinary year. But what we've taken away from this year, Jimmy, in 2020, it's really interesting. Let's go back. Let's look at the history here of what happened post-recession, post-2008, 2009, the Great Recession. We saw a lot of passive index. If you were just long the S&P 500, you did okay. And now all of a sudden in 2020, things have really changed for all the reasons we talked about. We're not going to talk about, obviously, everyone's aware there's a pandemic on hand. I think you know that one, right, Jimmy? I've heard, I've heard. But what's yeah. interesting in 2020 is that if you have proper exposure to certain sectors, I think that's been a winning recipe. More importantly, if you stayed away from some of the sectors, if you have not had exposure to some sectors, that also has been part of a winning recipe. So we look at some of the sectors that continue to prevail. We talk about tech. 
Textile is number one. We run a lot of ETF model portfolios. Not to get too wonky there, but all we're trying to do is figure out where there's relative strength, which sectors are revealing strength, and more importantly, which sectors are revealing weakness. So we talk about tech. We talk about medical devices. We talk about home construction. These are all kind of some of the sectors we can unpack and talk about some of the specific names that are inside of these ETFs. But we understand that energy has been one of the worst sectors year to date. Financials have really struggled. The bigger banks, they're finally getting a little bit of optimism. But my point is talking about 2020 is that really sets up 2021 for us, Jimmy. We see a lot of the sectors, we see a lot of the themes that worked in 2020 persist here in 2021. And if agree or disagree with the federal intervention, the Federal Reserve and all the money that they have taken their balance sheet and dramatically increased the size of their balance sheet to help support markets, agree with it or not, Jimmy, this is where we're at. And I think you have to embrace that you have to have the proper sector exposure to 2021 to try and seek to produce alpha. So did you just say that producing alpha is tech and energy are two that you like a lot. And let me uh, put an addendum on that question, too. You talked about relative strength. And tech has been, I mean, to call it relative strength is an understatement. I think that, you know, the, the stay-at-home trade, the flock to the stocks with good balance sheet trade just boosted those tech things. Yeah, they have relative momentum to everything else and relative strength. But at what point in time does that become stretch? Meaning, is there at some point in time going to be a great rotation out of those names that were the pandemic names, and you know the, the six names I'm talking about, Amazon, Google, you guys can fill in the blanks, into the broader market, the smaller stocks, the Russell. Well, look, I know you're much older than me, Jimmy, so sometimes much. you tend to take a nap when, when I talk too long. So clearly I went too long there because you obviously dozed off. I thought you were running for I office. Did not... I, didn't even, I didn't think you even said anything. I was like, what, what, do we want? what am I buying here, Kilberg? <laughs> well, energy is not a sector we own, if you would have paid attention. But technology certainly is. So when we look at the, the tech sector uh, by and large, you know, you can look at that broader exposure, you know, look at XLK. That, that's the ETF we like to talk about. But tech, certainly, from a relative safe perspective, is the number one on our models. It's the number one for a couple of years. And I think you bring up a great point. And this is really important, I think, for active investors to understand what the market cycle has been doing. So when you see the FANG stocks, we talk ad nauseum about the FANG stock. It's Facebook, it's Amazon, it's Apple. We took out Netflix, folks, and we put in Microsoft. And of course, lastly, it's Google. But those FANG stocks, make up nearly 25% of the S&P 500. So where those stocks go, the market goes. And on top of that, this gets a little bit tricky, but they're market cap weighted. So all that means is that Apple's a $2 trillion company. Amazon's a $2 trillion company. So they are weighted more in that type of index. If you look historically, going back the last five decades, Jimmy, an equal weighted strategy longer term will prevail over market cap strategy, no matter what your strategy or approach to the equity markets are. So I think at this moment in time, you have to consider maybe diminishing some of that exposure, not walking away from tech, but I think you have to diminish that some exposure. And some of the names that we're looking at or some of the sectors, I should say, we're looking to rotate into are some of the laggards of 2020. Look at some industrial names. Look at some of these consumer cyclical names that really fell out of favor when you saw COVID-19 hit the marketplace. So are you, are you saying right now that you believe 2021, let me, let me, I'll tell you what I think you said and you tell me if I'm right, that 2021, there's going to be a movement toward like actual growth, the, the coming back online of the U.S. economy. Now, do you, yes. are you, yeah, you, that, so I got that part right. Now, when you look at your thesis, too, uh, I talked about earlier in the show about how I believe one of the biggest themes is that government spending, zero interest rate policy, um, you know, just a ton of being propped up 
uh, by the government keeping rates low and forcing money into risk assets. Is that a broader theme that you agree with as well? 100%. I can't believe you and I are agreeing on something, Jimmy. But yes, you're absolutely spot on. And it hurts me to even say you're spot on, but you're hitting the nail on the head. And that's the whole component here is why you have to be allocated. It's because Fed Chairman Powell, he's the head of the Federal Reserve, he continues to articulate. That's a big word for it, Jimmy, but articulate means the message. He continues to message the market that it's a risk-on environment. And one thing we don't really talk enough about, that there's five trillion with a T, with a capital T. There's five trillion still sitting in cash. So when the Federal Reserve, the head of the Federal Reserve is telling us there's a risk on environment, all of a sudden you are seeing potential cash flow move into the market. And five trillion is five times the size of just the second stimulus bill. So there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines. So that's where you see every one of these little pullbacks. Some of these pullbacks, you know, can be 1%, 2%, 5%. You're seeing people buy this because that money has to go to work and they're forcing you to be inside the marketplace, but they're clearly saying it's a green light for another year, two, three years, because they're not even thinking about raising interest until 2023. I agree with you, but let's, let's talk about where we're wrong. Where is there a bubble? Like when tech stocks, you created their bubble and then the impending bust of the bubble. And then the same thing in real estate too. We look back at it and say, Man, we should have seen that coming That's a mile right. away, and we and we did. I, you know, I worked with a guy, and when the real estate bubble was filling up, who every day told me exactly how it was going to break down, and talked about the CDOs, and talked about all these uh, these banks that had these on their books. But you got to pinpoint it. You know, you, you got to uh, if you don't get it right. I mean, there's so few people who actually made the trade to make money, it blows me away. The guy I was talking about is one of the smartest guys I know, and he didn't make the trade. But anyway, where are the bubbles right now, or are they spread out into a bunch of different assets? Well, I, I think you talk a great point about bubbles, and I think there's certainly a concentration. We could identify Tesla, Tesla going to the S&P 500. Uh, I have a hard time owning Tesla, and I don't own Tesla for that reason. I can't get my arms and really embrace the fact. But where I think you have the ability to be diversified, where do you have the ability to potentially reduce risk in your portfolio is not walking away from tech. You can't walk away from Microsoft. You can't walk away from Amazon and Apple. We use them. They become essential in our lives. But where you can rotate and have a more diversified approach is in some of the industrial means. So think about a Honeywell. Think about a, a UPS, a Boeing. You talk about 3M, Caterpillar, even the GE. Some of these names which certainly don't have the sex appeal and the sizzle, of the FANG stocks, but these are names I think you want to own moving in 2021 because what's the biggest takeaway from COVID-19 from an investment perspective? When you're analyzing companies, if it's a small cap, if it's a mid cap, or it's a giant tech name like an Apple or Amazon, I think you have to really evaluate and understand, will that company, first of all, be in existence in a year from now, post-COVID? And secondly, will it have pricing power? What does pricing power mean, Jimmy? Pricing power means they'll be able to deliver more money, they'll be able to deliver more money to their shareholders, the bottom line. So I think that's the, the evaluation the process that you really have to walk through and understanding owning a name like a FedEx, owning a name like a Sherwin-Williams. Some of these names that just kind of got thrown, think of FedEx, that's a great example. FedEx was absolutely thrown away in the month of March during COVID. FedEx has surged now for, to all-time highs. And when you see a FedEx, a name like FedEx, which really wasn't supposed to do well, it leaped over 200 now it's knocking on $300. 
It's the best performing name. If you look from a performance perspective, it's up almost 100% year to date. Let me look at it right now. It's up 82%. But FedEx is a name that you have, you really had to put through the process, Jimmy, to understand how to own it. No doubt. Back in March when things were being thrown out, I remember looking at Tyson Foods and thinking to myself, because there's a pandemic here, are people not going to be eating chicken? Like, I mean, who's making this decision about it? So it was a trade and I bought it. And again, I, I don't make any recommendations. I give examples of things I do. I want to, my lawyers want me to make sure I say that. But uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting things to talk about this rally. So if you'll stay with us, we're going to take a break for a second and come back to a couple different topics. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show i'm jim urio filling in for dan and we're talking now to jeff kilberg the ceo of kkm financial who shared some interesting thoughts a second ago and i want to get his thoughts on a few other things you mentioned energy when I look at the energy sector, and, and I have some of the big integrated energy names, and I, I'm, I, my thinking right now is for these last two weeks of the year, there's going to be perhaps some pressure on them as people sell maybe to harvest tax losses. And I'm personally looking to establish some of those out-of-favor names as things start to come back on. Do you like that thesis, or are you just going to tell me how stupid I am like normal? No, no, I would like to go like a normal <laughs> response. But at the end of the day, you know, I think there's opportunity, right? Whenever you see sectors, and look at what happened to energy. When you saw that demand fall off, you really saw energy get beat up. So I, I, I'm okay with the thesis, but I really have to be specific to some of the names I want to own. I want to own the best balance sheets. I look at a name like Exxon or even a Chevron. I think that is a, a, maybe a, a little bit safer opportunity versus some of these names that are just high-flying. And you have to really have either or, Jimmy. You have to have a stomach for energy right now. Okay, so when I, we're looking at banks, and the banks just got a big boost after uh, some regulatory and they're allowed to whatever i don't want to get into the wonky details of what the government handed down and banks have done very well because of it i own some banks particularly goldman sachs but my thesis was that i thought there was going to be a steepening of the yield curve now this question you know again i think it's interesting is that i'm not just talking about the banks and steeping the yield curve because if we're talking about that then embedded in that question is the fact that in four months five months six months from now our economy is going to be back online, back 95% online, restaurants full again, uh, the pandemic just a distant memory, but potentially the Fed still hanging around with zero rates and the federal government still spending like a drunken sailor, which could put up a little bit of inflation, steepen out the yield curve, propel banks even higher. Thoughts on banks? Well, first and foremost, steepen the yield curve. Jimmy likes to be fancy with some of the terms. Oh, yeah, explain what that means, by the way. This isn't our normal audience, right? Yeah. That's right. Steeping of the yield curve simply means... The U.S. Treasury offers one-month, six-month, one-year notes, also five-year notes, 10-year notes, and then they go all the way up to the 30-year bond. So a steeping of a yield curve means that that 30-year bond is going to pay a higher interest rate than the 10-year bond, and the spread, the difference between the 10-year and the 30-year gets larger. So when you have that steeping of a yield curve, that allows banks to lend at higher rates and make more money. So the depressed or the suppressed rate environment that we're currently in has really been challenging for banks. That's why they've struggled. That's why it's been the second worst sector of 2020 in the S&P 500. But I think you bring up a great point. Uh, I'm not on, you know, I'm not on the same page. I think rates are going to be flying higher anytime soon just because 
the Federal Reserve, you know, they own one third of all the ten-year note issuance out wow. there. Wow! Wow! And had the buy, bunch of the yeah. corporates as well. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So when they're the biggest owner and they want to keep rates suppressed to help the economy heal, I think you have to be mindful of that. But I think there's certain banks. I'm in the camp, and I'm currently long J.P. Morgan. I think J.P. Morgan is the best in business. We think that's an essential name. Think about what would happen if J.P. Morgan wasn't around. Every credit card, every car loan, every home mortgage, you know, it touches you know about 85% of Americans in some facets. So we like J.P. Morgan, but you're absolutely right. I think the banks, if you're looking for some value out there, now is the time, but we're adverse to owning banks because this rate environment that you talked about, and I did a wonderful job of explaining to the folks what it looks like. This is where Wake it's me up when you're done, will you, Kilberg? I'm done. I'm done. Mike, Mike dropped. No, listen, and again, I want to reiterate, and something when I, when I talked to Scott, we talked about as well, is that these are serious topics. And we know that, particularly yeah. we're talking about potential you know, dollar collapse and, and a government getting involved where it shouldn't. But I'm, you know, I'm going to have fun talking about these things because I think they're exciting. I, you know, you're I can't, a fun guy, Jimmy. Well, you're no, exciting. I, again, guy. I, again, you know, I'm, I mean, we're, you and I are both Irish. We, you know, we know when you go to a funeral, you can be somber and sad or you can grab a drink and have some fun. And, um, you know, and that, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And I hope that that doesn't offend anybody because I know these are serious things. Um, I want to, before I was talking about that week back in March, and I think the role that sports played when everything started to hit the fan, and the role that sports played, I told a story about my, my older daughter who doesn't have much emotions, but when they canceled the NCAA tournament, she broke down in tears. And I still, every time I think about it, I almost want to cry myself uh, because she rarely shows emotion. And it just was kind of emblematic of everything falling apart. Sports have come back online. When pro sports came back online, it didn't seem like anyone was watching them uh, as much. I mean, ratings were down. But football and college basketball have seemed... Do, do they do they have an importance? Are they you know like a psychological importance in bringing people back together and making people feel connected through that? I mean, I know what you're going to answer, but I, I want to underscore it anyway. No, I think it's a great point you bring up, and I think when you talk about the amplification, everything was amplified. Emotions were amplified. This COVID nineteen, we've never been in a pandemic. I know you're old, so maybe you're around. Maybe you're probably five years old. The last pandemic back in 1918, <laughs> but you're absolutely right to have these sports come out and give us an escape. Give us an opportunity to be distracted for a little bit, and that brings folks together. Now, of course, we can't come together and, and get into a bar, like a great bar like Brant's. We'll plug there for you. Thank but you. What we can what we can't do right now is come together, but we can connect it and talk about sports. So I think it's been, it's been really important, a piece of fabric that's bringing us back together, and I hope there's some normalcy. But, yeah, obviously I'm a little biased. Uh, I'm a youth football coach. You know, my boys play, my daughter, you know, is a big tennis player. So we get excited about having the opportunity to do something different, to distract us from the day and the stress, because there's stress at all different levels. If you're six years old, 46 years old, or 86 years old like yourself, there's stress at all these different levels inside this pandemic. I, I just can't believe that you went through a role of talking about your kids playing sports, and the old Jeff Kilberg would have also said, oh, and I happen to play football for Notre Dame under Coach Lou Holtz where I played center, and you didn't say that. I think this is an amazing me- moment of growth for you, and I'd like to applaud you on that. <laughs> and I appreciate that. I'm trying to get out in front of my New Year's <laughs> resolutions in 2021. So thank you. I much sure. appreciate it. Okay, now a, a serious question, too, and this is pandemic-related, too, and this is just an opinion, an opinion from a smart guy, and I know it's not your core, necessarily your core competency, but when you look at six months from now, when you look at we in the beginning of summer, do you believe that our life and the way we go about doing things will have changed irreversibly? 
Or do you think that if you in 2021 of June is going to look the same as 2021 of 2019 and just 2020, we're just going to take out of our memory and throw it away? I, I think our lives professionally and personally will certainly be changed. So six months from now, we're not going to revert back to where we were back in 2019. However, I think, well, I'm the ultimate optimist, right? But I believe that the acceleration of the vaccine, the distribution of the vaccine, even though it's been less than impressive uh, as of yet, but I think it's going to be accelerated. I think you're going to see a lot faster uh, application. Well, let me stop you real quick right there. Illinois. If you and I were in charge of the vaccine, wouldn't we have had those trucks rolling out at 10:10 on that Friday night when it was approved? What the heck's going on? Why does the government mess things up so badly? Well, I, they're notorious for doing that. And absolutely, if we were in charge, it'd be a totally different. Everyone would have a pinky ring. I mean, there'd be a lot of things going on <laughs> if we were in charge. But nonetheless, I think they're going to get the rubber to meet the road. I think there's been a lot of planning. I think there's, you know, you have to think about it. Pfizer and Moderna, those are the two companies, folks, that have brought this vaccine. Two different vaccines. One needs to be super, super cold. Other one uh, it does not. But there's 25 or 26 other companies. There's a global sense of urgency looking for a vaccine. So I think when you really see the horsepower hit sometime in January and February, I think we're going to be a totally different totally different component. Living in the state of Illinois, I'm being optimistic, but I think April, May, you're going to see a complete change. And I think we're going to revert, but at the same time, we're never going to forget the pandemic. No doubt. It was a, it was a big time in my life and it was, it was a huge depressing part. And it's sometimes hard to, to be enthusiastic, but you know, we got to move ahead. Thank you very much, Jeff. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Always a pleasure, buddy. You're the best. Take care. Merry Christmas. And happy holidays. You Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. This is The Dan Proft Show. I'm reliable, I'm a very good listener, and I'm extremely funny. On the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm Jim Urio, sitting in for Dan today. Now we have Casey Mulligan, who's a professor of economics at the University of Chicago, and he served as chief economist of the White House Council of Economic Advisors in 2018 and 19. And he's also the author of the recently released You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. Welcome, Casey. Oh, glad to join you. Okay, good. There's a couple things that I want to unpack, which I read the recent article of yours about how economics helped end the pandemic. And you talked about the regulatory process being streamlined and it much easier to get approvals today. I had a difficult time ascertaining the tone. You think that's ultimately a very good thing, correct? Yes. I mean, that's something we've noted in our profession for, for generations, that the FDA especially made it very hard to bring new treatments and new cures to the market. Um, and especially in a pandemic, we don't have time to wait. So, so let me ask you this. Now, does it like, is there a part of you in your head that worries a little bit that if, cause I know there's people out there who think, well, this was, this was rushed through, this was rushed through. Are we just talking about eliminating all the dead time, all the government bureaucracy and actually getting down to the evaluation of the new drugs, treatments, vaccines quicker. So there's really, we're not losing anything in the, in the you know, quality of the research. Yes. That's what they did in, in the warp speed. They didn't skip steps. I think they should have skipped steps, so we could have been doing vaccine much earlier, but they did not skip steps, but they got rid of the dead space. 
they allowed some steps to be done simultaneous instead of in sequence. And that's why uh, we got the vaccine in six or seven months instead of 18 months, like the experts were saying. Okay. So, like, what? who's responsible for the changes that have been made along the way in the regulatory process in order to streamline this? Or was it just the pandemic itself that, you know, kind of kicked everyone saying, okay, we got to get going because things are really, you know, genuinely hanging in the balance here? Or was there something that happened pre-pandemic? I'm sure there was both. Uh, Definitely before the pandemic, you know, as I said, it's been understood that these approval processes were too long. And President Trump had worked hard on this as soon as he got in office. I I don't think he knew a pandemic was coming, but it's not just pandemic treatments that, that were slow. And particularly, he promised in his campaign to lower prescription drug prices. And one of the things we told him, he said, well, one thing that makes drugs expensive is all this approval time. And he uh, put in Scott Gottlieb as his first commissioner there, and Scott immediately pulled out uh, and streamlined a lot of the processes for approving. In that case, it was generic drugs, so there wasn't anything new. It was just a red tape. And we saw actually the stocks of some companies crash that, that had gamed this system because um, they weren't going to be able to overcharge consumers for generic drugs anymore. Um, and the president really learned from that. He, he realized that, Number one, you, you get results this way, and, and they also learn some of the bureaucratic maneuvers. You know, it's not easy to turn a bureaucratic ship, and he, he learned how to grab the wheel and turn it. So when uh, COVID arrived, he was ready um, to turn the ship again. That, that's a really interesting way you put it, because I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, and people and friends of mine on the left were just, just hammering uh, Donald Trump on the fact that he either cut funding to the CDC or talked about fund, cutting funding to the CEC it, after time. I forget what it is, but you're saying that his, the movements he made prior to this actually were, were really good for how this has worked out. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. He, he knew what had to be done and he had practiced it. It's one thing to know. And then, but you're doing it the first time, but this was not the first time he was streamlining uh, approval processes. In fact, it's not the first time he had looked at, approval processes for pandemics. We had also done a a report for him, and he was so excited he made an executive order around that in 2019. So COVID was not on the radar, but we said, you know, pandemics do come every once in a while. We need to be ready. And the number one way to be ready, the president said, is fast vaccine. So he had already laid the groundwork for for this whole thing. Okay, so now when we talk about uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci and the role he's played, and when he came on the scene, I was you know, very pleased to see an Italian-American in his position like that. But then I've questioned some of the things he's done. Do you think this, and this has to be a short answer before the break, and then we'll take it up again, but economics versus the medical handling of the pandemic, do you think that that was ultimately mismanaged? Do you think the people who were making decisions were just focused on medicine and not focused on the economic damage? Yeah, in fact, they were focused on just a narrow part of medicine and ignoring economics and most other medicine. That's it. Okay. And you think that's an enormous source of frustration and should be for the American people, correct? Yeah. I mean, we all, <laughs> we've all experienced it firsthand, I'm afraid. Okay, good. We're going to take a little of a break here. We're talking to Casey Mulligan, who's an uh, economics professor at the University of Chicago and used to be on the Council of Economic Advisors. And I'm going to, to press him on my daughter's application to the University of Chicago and what he can do to get her moved ahead of line. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to end up in any sort of jail with... Um, who was the lady from the Full House who uh, paid for her daughter to get into USC? But anyway, we're going to take a break now. We'll take this up again in a sec. The more you listen, the more you'll know. 
This, this, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, I'm Jim Uriel sitting in for Dan, and I'm, I'm still talking to Casey Mulligan, who's an economics professor from University of Chicago and used to be with the Council of Economic Advisors. Um, I'd also like to plug his recently released book, You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. And uh, we're talking about economics of the pandemic versus you know, the focus on the pandemic itself. When you, so we look at lockdowns and we look at an absolutely cratering of an economy that was doing okay prior to the pandemic. Are there specific things you can think of that could have been done differently, handled differently? Um, well, the number one thing, I go back to what the president said uh, over a year ago. The number one defense in the pandemic is vaccine. I think the vaccine should have been quicker. Um, you know, actually, the Moderna vaccine started being given to humans on March 16th. That was the same day we closed the schools here in Chicago. So the vaccine was there. Now, we need to have confidence in it, and I, but we could have got that thing to the people before December. So um, is it true? I'm glad we didn't wait an extra year, but we could have got it quicker. Okay. Is it true that that vaccine was in the exact form it's in now on January 13th? Of, uh, yeah, that's when they, they started phase one. And if you can't change the formula at that point, you can change dosages. Um, but if they had a new formula, they'd have to go back to square one. Okay. And now, now it's this... a bit of luck, but th- th- that's true. Sure. Now, is this, you know, vaccine, when you, when you talk about, you think about vaccines in the past, and you know, when most people know the story about the smallpox versus cowpox and how you just injected people with, and I know, I know you're not a doctor, but is this the first time we've ever used like a vaccine that's that, what is it called again, the RNA messenger? Um, are, do you think because of that, that it needed more regulatory uh, hoops to jump through to make sure we were all confident of it? Or do you think it was just government incompetence? No, I, I, I think what needs to be done is what they call post-market surveillance. So the, we need to watch closely now that people are getting, we need to watch closely, and the FDA is, and, and people may have a reaction <laughs> in one part of the country, and then they got to go check it out quickly. That's the way to, to analyze these vaccines, because usually the side effects are for a minority of people, and they're serious, And but you don't want to stop the vast bulk of the population from getting the benefit while you do a bureaucratic process. You, you, you do them both at the same time, and they call it post-market surveillance, and that's the FDA's job now to do that well. They, they, they shouldn't go to sleep on the job right now. We need to watch and make sure this is working out the way we hoped. When you look at the, the bureaucratic kind of bumbling of a, of a big overstuffed government and you look at the rollout of this vaccine, with a couple other guests I was talking about how, in my opinion, if the private sector was involved in this, it was approved at 10 o'clock on a Friday night, we would have had those trucks rolling at 1010 and we would have been ready to move on this. So far in the United States, there's 11, I might have these numbers wrong, but this is what I read on the Internet. And of course, everything you read on the Internet has to be true. Um, 11 million doses have been delivered around the country, but only as of yesterday, only 650,000 of those doses have been actually administered, actually shot into people's arm. Is this a source of frustration to you? Do you think this could have been handled any better? Yeah, I, I agree with you that in the private sector, we saw that in the manufacturing of the, of the vaccine and the testing of it. That was done to the private sector. And the president knew this. The president knew the government was going to make it slow and make it screwed up. And he tried to have private sector partnerships to the extent uh, that they could back in the spring. And, and now we're realizing we should have had some more of those partnerships. We should have had a private company um, 
involved in distributing this thing to Amen. greater degree than we have now. No doubt about it. That's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night, Casey. Just are you, 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 you tell us that this is just this awful thing that's terrible and insidious and it's wrong, and then we have these vaccines sitting where you know people like my 93-year-old mother, and I'm using her as an example, but she's had it already, so I, you know, I'm not as concerned about the vaccine, but it just blows me away that they're sitting and not being done. And I'm sure if the government, if, if history is any indicator that it'll go slow and slowly pick up pace, and in about two months they'll have a ton of it going, and, that, and that's just fine. Now, I'm going to ask you about life in the United States from an economic standpoint. Do you think... If in two months we, you know, 10% of the population has been vaccinated and most of the at-risk people, do you see a time that things are going to be normal and this is just going to be a distant memory? And is that time, is it June of this year or when is it? Yeah, I think it'll become well before June. You know, we do have political leaders and, you know, they, they have their laws and their rules, but ultimately the people have got to be cooperative. And once we see that, you know, you've got the vulnerable people, and so the deaths aren't really happening anymore. People are just going to say, you know, why can't I go to school? Why can't I go to work? And they're just going to do it um, because they know that it, the dangers have largely passed, and they don't want to stay locked in uh, for a danger that's mostly historical at that point. It brings up something, too, because we've talked all about the vaccines, and it seems like, generally speaking, um, no one's ever talked about the therapeutics. Um, do you think the therapeutics, the, the Regeneron antibody cocktail, the remdesivir, um, the drug that they have, which, which my mom received, um, w- did those face the same uh, regulatory hurdles? And how come the, Regener- the uh, remdesivir came out so quickly? And should we be concentrating more on therapeutics anyway? Well, one of the ways that the FDA had been streamlined in the past couple decades was in removing some of these barriers for um, what they call off-label usage. So if the drug's been approved by the FDA for something, <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is, and then doctors decide, you know what, I want to prescribe it for something else, like this new virus we have, they can go ahead and do that, and there's no regulatory barriers there. So to the extent a therapeutic could be taken off the shelf from something else, we could go quickly. And that's one reason we saw the therapeutics uh, happening earlier. You know, that the... the uh, Having a cure versus a vaccine, it's an interesting question which one you want. I mean, ideally, early in a pandemic, you're working on both, and, you know, you're rolling the dice, and if you're rolling two dice, one will turn up well, and and that's the one you use. Sure, but from a macroeconomic standpoint, which is, I'm obviously, you know, I'm in, you know, an analyst for for, uh, hedge funds, things like that, and I I look at rates and currencies, and so I look at the macroeconomic picture quite a bit, and my theory from the beginning was if a vaccine is announced— then there's this incentive to keep the economy locked down for a couple of months. But if a therapeutic's been announced, then the economy can rebound quicker. You have any thoughts on that? I, I agree with you that if if vaccine is announced but it's not here, then people have an incentive, regardless of what the government's saying, is maybe I should stay stay home and stay low, lay low right. for a little while until that vaccine comes. And, and then you'll have kind of a... Re- pre-vaccine recession from that. Yeah, right. That's why I was kind of always the whole time hoping that there was going to be a therapeutic. Uh, I want to thank you for being on it. I think this has been really informative about the things that I don't know about. So thank you so much, Casey. I hope to talk to you again soon. Have a good day, Tim. The 
listen to podcasts of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is Jim Urio sitting in for Dan. And this this is the first time I've done this show. And I've really, I, I love being able to sit and talk about things that are interesting with some very smart people. Frankly, I thought the producers were making a, a grave mistake in giving me a microphone relatively unsupervised for two hours. I've been a trading floor, uh, worked on a trading floor for 35 years. And, and down there, it's a little bit rough and it's probably one of the only times in my adult life that I've gone two hours without using any colorful language, but so far so good. But on the show, we've talked about some some fascinating things. We've talked about taxes. We've talked about stimulus. We talked about major psychological shifts in the way people think and where they're moving and what, how they feel about sports. I, I am going to bring it back to one of the things that I think is the most important theme that we talked about here, and I, I don't want it to leave people's mind because I think some of these economic forces that are pushing them around sometimes are a little more complicated and they don't think about them. But the fact that the government is just spending as much money as they feel like spending without a care in the world and the uh, the national debt has risen $7 trillion in three years' time um, is dumbfounding. It just blows me away. The fact that the Federal Reserve is in buying corporate bonds. Yes, remember, everybody knows that that was announced a couple of years ago that the Fed was going to buy corporate bonds. But everyone, just say that to yourself and let that roll around a little bit. The government owning corporate bonds. They're just Now we're just a, a, a sneeze away from the government buying stocks as well. And keep in mind that the Swiss government does, the Japanese, the Bank of Japan does. There, many of these central banks around the world are becoming more and more activists and getting involved with our life more. Now, the thing that, that I think that everybody should have on the front of their mind is how to potentially hedge ourselves and keep ourselves, you know, the risks mitigated of a, a potential currency issue. And when I say issue, it's, it's better than saying a currency collapse or cataclysmic currency problem, because those are hyperbolic and dramatic, obviously. But it, it could be that our government is being a little cavalier with our currency. And that's why we talked about things like Bitcoin and gold and silver and realistically, even the U.S. stock market. Um, I, I think that as things play out over the next few months, you know, our, our life just becomes more and more interesting when we see how these um, these uh, elections going to play out in, in Georgia. I think that the, the, the stock market could have a difficult time adjusting to the notion that a government that's not divided and can push through an agenda, particularly an agenda that has corporate America in the crosshairs and says that we want to tax you more and we want to rein in corporate excess. Surprise, spoiler alert, the U.S. stock market is made up of different corporations, and they're not going to like that too much. Now, there's a lot of people out there who are pretty smart saying that the government's going to spend so much money that it's going to dwarf the problem of overtaxation. I'm, I'm sure that that's probably the case because it seems like both sides of the aisle just keep wanting to spend. But um, it's interesting if the stock market can, is going to make that adjustment. But anyway... Taxes, life and death, psychological changes. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, thank you all for joining us today. I, I hope to do it again. This has been Jim Uriel and this is Dan Proctor. This is the Dan Proft Show.